So this is what we covered three or four weeks ago. Joshua 21, 43 through 45. Thus, the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And when we looked at that, we saw the faithfulness of God in keeping his promises, right? Well, let's pray. Father, we ask again for your help this morning. We come to you tired. We come to you exhausted, longing for your rest. We long for that time when we will forever rest with you and enjoy that perfect communion with you that we long for. We ask for your spirit this morning to help us, help us to understand your word, help us to see your heart even this morning. In Jesus' name this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Oof, I am tired. Man, oh man. So... In order for us to understand what I want us to draw attention, what I want to draw attention to, right in the middle of that verse, we're gonna to have to go to the wayback machine. We're gonna to have to go way back to Genesis. Early in the book of Genesis, in particular in chapter twelve, God directs a guy named Abram, who would later be called Abraham. He tells him to go to the land of Canaan. He takes him from what's probably modern-day Iraq, and he says, you're going to go east, start walking. And he talks to him and gives him a covenant. He makes a covenant with Abram at that time and promises him this land of Canaan that you're going to, it's all going to be yours forever. He made that promise along with several other promises. And then you go forward 430 years after Abraham, And that promise had not been fulfilled yet. So that land of Canaan that God sent Abraham to, and he promised to give him, you go forward 430 years. That's a long time, right? That's how old is our country? Like 250-ish? I don't know. I'm not good with math (laughs) fast. It's, It's twice as long as our country's been around. And that promise had not yet been fulfilled. And it was then in the book of Exodus that you would read of God hearing the cries of his people. Now, his people are at that time are the nation of Israel, and it's a multitude of people. What's interesting about that is those are all descendants of Abraham. So he kept that promise to make them grow into a multitude. But at that point in the book of Exodus, they're slaves under Egypt. And they're oppressed, and they cry out, and God hears them. And he displays his mighty power by bringing the ten plagues of Egypt. You maybe have heard that story. And he frees them. He redeems them from their slavery. And then God uses a brash and fearful man named Moses to lead those people out of Egypt through a parted Red Sea and into the wilderness on their way to that land that God had promised Abraham 430 years before. He's like, we're going. I'm telling you, I'm going to give you this land. We're going. 
and he takes them to the wilderness, and he brings them, it takes about a year of kind of going, I and mean, you got more than a million people, so it takes a little while to walk that far. He takes them up to the borders of this promised land that he promised Abraham, almost 500 years at that point. He takes them all the way up to the border. On a mountaintop, you could see it all. You could see this land that was promised to them. And Moses decides to set out a recon mission. He says, we're going to send out 12 spies to go check out this land that's been promised to us. 12 spies, one spy from each tribe. And those spies go in because they've been told that this place, this land that's promised to them, is full of the choicest fruits, that it's an amazing place. And they know that people live there, and they've got to go in and figure out, well, how are we going to take this land? Because God promised it to us. We can't just, like, move in. They have to figure out what they're going to do. Well, the spies go in. They discover that, in fact, the land is as amazing as they say. But the report that they come back and give, two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, it's amazing. Let's go. God's going to give it to us. Ten of the spies say, there's big, scary people there. We're not going to do it because they're big. They, they're like two feet taller than us. They're just scary people. They had forgotten what they had just seen God do with the ten plagues of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, giving food from the sky, causing water to come out of a rock. They forgot it all, and they said, there's big, scary people. We can't go in there. And then they complain against God. They say, you should not have brought us out of slavery. We should have just stayed there in slavery. You're bringing us out here to die. And God was ticked. God was really ticked. In fact, God says at that point that I'm not going to let you go into that land. All of you. All of you that are complaining, I'm not going to let you. And here's what he actually says. And later in Psalm 95, we hear God's commentary on those idiots. Okay? Those, the, the ten spies and all of those people that complained, he says this. God says this. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And he says this, therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. I don't know if you caught that. He didn't say, they shall not enter the land I promised. What did he call it? His rest. They shall not enter my rest. We call it the promised land. God right here says, this land that I promised, I call that my rest. Now, so in the wilderness, you got all these complaining rebels. And God says, this generation will die here in this wilderness their children will be the ones that get to go into the, world, into the promised land. So you've got to go forward 40 years for those, 
that generation to die. And you come to the book of Deuteronomy, and Moses stands up in front of all this new generation that has lived. So it would be the children, their parents died, these children now are adults, and they're ready to go into the promised land. And Moses gets up and gives them a report of everything they need to hear, preaches a sermon to them. And in that sermon, he tells them what God wants them to do in this promised land, this place called my rest, his rest. He tells them that there are all kinds of people here who are sacrificing their children, who are worshiping gods, committing immorality all over the place. And he says, when you go into the promised land, you are not to worship as they do. He says, you're to destroy, and this is Deuteronomy chapter 12. He says, you're to destroy all of the idols that are there. You are to utterly destroy the people that live there. You're to wipe it out to cleanse all the evil. And you then are to be my people. And you are to worship me rightly. And he goes on to say in verse 8 of Deuteronomy 12, you shall not do according to all that you, we are doing here today, talking about the idol of worships, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes, for you have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan River and live in the land that the Lord your God has given you to inherit, when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. Now I want you to notice two things in that. Again, he calls it the land, but he also there calls it entering that rest. The land that God promised Abraham almost 500 years for sure now at this point. He calls it his rest. You enter in, but when you go in, you have to wipe everybody out and worship me the right way. He calls it his rest, but then he also says that he will dwell there. What he's doing there is equating the place of rest is the place where God is. Where there is ultimate rest, that's where God's presence is. I want you to catch that. This is the first thing I want you to remember today to not, so to just get this in your head. Where there is ultimate rest, lasting rest, there you will find God's lasting presence. That's what he's holding out to the people of Israel. He's saying, if you go into the land and you obey me and you do what I'm telling you to do, I will make my presence be there with you. That will be your rest. That's what he held out for them. So what's interesting is this is a theme that actually starts in Genesis chapter 2. The beginning of Genesis chapter 2 is the seventh day of creation. What did God do? He rested. 
And if you think about it and you kind of read through your Bible looking for this, you're going to see this theme of rest from Genesis. And I read it this morning when I opened up our service, Revelation 21, of resting, being there in God's presence. When you are in God's presence, then you get the rest you're longing. So he promised rest here in Deuteronomy 12. And the people are going to leave the wilderness and they're going to enter the rest. And that's where this book of Joshua comes in that I've been preaching through. Right? It's story after story of the people of Israel going into that promised land. And God gives them victory after victory after victory. He wipes out so many of their enemies. All they have to do is go into that battle and say, God help us. And he does it for them. That's all they have to do. And you see it over and over and over in Joshua. And then we got to Joshua chapter 13 through 18. And it was this really boring passage of this tribe got this land and this family got this land. And this for five chapters. It was very amazing, actually. We got to see what God was doing. He was fulfilling his promise, giving them the land. He's like, here it is. Take it. The present, the offering of rest, he gave it to them. And then we saw this summary verse. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Now, we read the Deuteronomy 12. You hear that echo of exactly what he had just said in Deuteronomy 12 to to Moses. Through Moses, he said, I will give you rest on every side. I'm going to make my name dwell there. He said that. Right here in Joshua, they get through all the battles, give out the land, and he says, and God gave them rest. But here's the question. He gave them rest. Did they actually enter in and receive that rest? This is the big question. And I want to show you some verses that I've conveniently skipped in my last several sermons. Okay? Joshua 15, 63. This is in the middle of those boring, quote, boring passages. It says this, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell there with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Now that's a problem, folks, because God said, drive them out. They don't worship him. They've got all kinds of problems, sacrificing children, worshiping false gods. And the people of Judah could not drive them out. And it's not because they couldn't, because they didn't have a God that would help them. That's that's what is very clear to the reader. Next chapter. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. So another tribe, did not remove the inhabitants of the land that were doing these evil things. Next chapter, yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. And the writer of Joshua wrote that phrase, that last phrase like that on purpose, so that if you knew your Old Testament, you would say, wait a second, that's exactly what God said to do, is utterly drive them out. And they didn't utterly drive them out. That's a huge problem. Chapter 18, Joshua says to the people, 
how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, your, the God of your fathers, has given you? What I'm trying to show you here is, though that verse in chapter 21 says God gave them rest, doesn't mean that they entered in and did what they were supposed to do in order to achieve the rest where God dwells with them. In fact, if we had read Hebrews 4, which we will in a little bit here, you'll see that it actually says in the New Testament that Joshua and the people did not enter that rest. And those passages there are not there by accident because God told them, wipe them out, and then you'll receive that rest. They didn't truly and fully experience the rest God promised because they blended in with the people. They blended in with those people there that worshipped false gods. And, and I, I wish I could paint a picture for you of what this is like because I think when I was a kid and I hear some a preacher say they worship false gods, I think about it this way. Okay, well, I lived in Louisville, Kentucky for a while, and we had a Hindu temple, we had an uh, Islamic mosque, we had multiple religions in that town. I went and checked those things out. They had their little temples, idols even, in the bit Hindu place, and we all lived together. We all lived in the same town. Their worship of their idols didn't bother me. That's kind of what I thought about it. When I hear a pastor say, well, they just, you know, they didn't drive them out. I kind of thought it's like this, you know, we all kind of get along together. And you do your thing and I do my thing. Yeah, right? Now, the problem is, it wasn't like that. And I tell you what, it's still not like that today. Because the worship of false idols today affects you more than you think it does. And back then, these people, it was awful. There was male prostitutes, homosexuality out on display. The trans thing you're seeing today was all over. The god of Asherah, that's what she had people doing. It was the same thing, but it was people would literally have a baby, and they'd put it up on an altar out in the middle of the town square, sacrifice it to the god. And you're supposed to be okay with that. And God's saying to Israel, I am not okay with that. Israel, you are not okay with that. And God gave Israel a command to wipe them out. Now, caveat, God is not telling us to go wipe out those who, <laughs> who do not worship him. That's his job. Israel was given a job then. And they were told, you must wipe them out. Instead, they just got along. And they made some of them slaves. Oh, it'll be okay. We'll just make them slaves. That's a big problem. In fact, I want you to listen. Did I put this quote here? A guy named Richard Baxter says this about the Israelites. It's a little ouch because he says we're like them. He says, we are like the Israelites. When God gave them his Sabbaths of rest and the land of rest. Get this. He had more work to do to make them believe it that he would be their presence, their rest, then he had to overcome their enemies 
All those victories and over and over, the, the, the Jordan River, walls of Jericho falling down, he had more work to do in making the people believe it than all the other stuff. Then when they had it, the rest was handed to them, though it was only a small intimation of a more incomparably glorious rest of Christ. They simply sat down and said, surely there is no other heaven but this. Think about it. In a similar way, we hardly believe that there is such a happiness as Christ has obtained for us. In other words, we're all very content at times with the gifts that we have on this world right now. We enjoy the comfort of even this building, the air conditioning, the humidity outside, air conditioning in here. We get really comfortable And we begin to lose sight that this is not it, folks. And like the Israelites, they came came out of slavery. They came out of the wilderness. They're given this land. All their enemies in general are wiped out enough that they can get along and just, oh, this is really nice. I kind of like this. And God said, your job's not done. God had promised both a physical and a spiritual blessing, land and his presence, right? But they failed to trust and obey. They had the opportunity to experience the promised rest of God and did not receive it because they disobeyed. And here's the thing. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 explains a lot about what happened. And I want us to, you to listen to this. I'm going to read it to you. It's too much to put up on the screen. So just listen. And you're going to hear a whole bunch of things that I'd already said to you from Old Testament passages today. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And then he says the word therefore. So in other words, what does it look like to hold fast to the real hope? That's ahead of us, not here yet, ahead of us. Well, it looks like this. This is, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and he quotes Psalm 95 that we read earlier, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And the author of Hebrews goes on to say, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient, 
So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. I want you to hear that. He says a promise of entering his rest still stands. I don't think that means a promise of entering the land of Canaan for you and I. It's his presence with us. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed, and I'm going to translate it more correctly, are entering that rest. As he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Right there, folks, you have it, that the rest that they started to experience in Joshua wasn't it. It wasn't the full rest. They didn't get it all because they didn't trust and obey. Verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I know that's a lot, and it's really complicated. But I know as you heard all that, you heard a word repeated a lot, right? What's the word you heard a lot? A couple of words. Rest, entering in, right? I want you to see something, because he's got a pattern here. Nine, it's really tiny, but you'll get the point. Nine times in that passage, that section that I read, it talks about entering God's rest, not to enter rest. They were unable to enter on account of unbelief. Over and over, nine times he said, entering his rest. So when we see that, I think the theme is really loud and clear. The people of Israel were called to enter the rest of of God by faith and obedience, and they failed. And dear friends, we are called, that very last one, verse 11, we are called to strive to earnestly to enter that rest. We would, are called to do it in the same way by faith and obedience. We have to strive earnestly to do that. And I know this raises a whole lot of questions. But there's some questions I want to just try and answer quickly in the time that remains. I want to ask, 
What is God talking about? What is this rest? What does that really mean, Paul? I, I, it's not clicking in my head yet. And the reason I know that's a question, should be a question in your head, because it was in my head for weeks. I'm like, I'm still not sure what does this mean. The next question is, what is that rest? When we know what it is, well, what is it like? And what will we rest from? And what hinders us from striving to enter that rest? And how do we keep our eyes on that rest? So I want to answer those questions quickly. Um, I, I want to say that as I've been studying these passage, this passage and that Joshua passage and thinking about what does this mean, I struggled <laughs> because it, 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 it sounds like something that's here and now. Like we enter this rest. Like I even opened up our ser- my sermon asking you how many are tired. We talked about we want rest. And it sounds kind of like we're supposed to get it now. But for several of these reasons that I could give you, as I read through the Hebrews, I have come to see that that rest is not something you get now. I think when it talks about God's rest, it's a really simple answer. It's heaven. Heaven is what that rest is. That eternal state when we're with God. That's what we're striving every day. I'm just going to take another step. And I'm going to take a next step and next step. To get there. It is a laborious work of perseverance. So what is this rest? I would argue the rest of God that he's calling us to enter into is heaven. Okay, easy answer to the question. Next question is, well, what is that rest heaven like? And I quoted him earlier, this old dead guy, Richard Baxter. He wrote a book in 1650 called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. It was a huge bestseller. And his book, I highly, highly recommend. There's a new updated version that's a little bit easier to understand. And I've gone through it actually almost three times this week. I've just been so blessed by it. So some of these things I'm going to show you are directly from him. And I want to give you this this quote from him. It's kind of long. But it helps us see what is this rest? What is heaven like? Heaven, it contains a cessation. What is this rest? It contains a cessation, a stop from all motion or action that implies the absence of the end. What does that mean? Well, here's what he means. When we have reached the harbor, we've finished sailing. When the workman has his wages... He's completed his work. All motion ends at the center, and all means cease when we have the end. Thus, there will be no more prayer, because there will be no more necessity, only a full enjoyment of what we've prayed for. We will not need to fast or weep and watch anymore, being out of reach of sin and temptations, nor will we need instruction and exhortation. Preaching is done. Ministry ceases. The sacraments are now past their use. The laborers are now called in because the harvest is gathered. The tares are burnt and the work is done. The unregenerate are past hope. The saints are past fear forever. This rest contains a perfect freedom 
from all the evils that accompanied us through our course in this world. For nothing enters heaven that's defiled or unclean. And doubtless there is no such thing as grief or sorrow there, nor is there such a thing as a pale face, feeble joints, languishing sickness, groaning fears, consuming cares, or whatever deserves the name of evil. A gale, like a strong wind, a gale of groans and a stream of tears will accompany us all the way up to the end, to the very gates, and there they will bid us farewell forever. So all the groans and streams of tears that you have right now, if you go all the way up, you get to the gates of heaven, it's all done. Our sorrow will be turned into joy, and no one will take our joy from us. Isn't that encouraging? That is what his rest will be like. That's the rest that he held out in Deuteronomy 12 and in Joshua and over and over. And even here in Hebrews, he's holding out to us. This is what I'm offering you. Strive to that end and I will give it to you. That's what he's saying. Some of us don't know what continual suffering is like. I don't. I know some people that have dealt with continual suffering every day, pain that just never ends. Most of us don't know what continual hardship is like, but I think if our lives were faced with daily hardships, like we don't know whether we're going to get to eat today, we don't know whether they're going to knock on the door and take us away, we don't know whether we're going to be sick again today, if we had that, I think the taste of what I just read would feel more real to us. Because I think we have so much comfort right now. It gets my eyes off of where he wants me to be. So let me ask, point out, answer the next question. What will we rest from? What are we going to rest from? And Baxter gave gave me 10 things. We're going to be here for a while. No, it'll go quick. Ten things that we're going to rest from in heaven. First one, perplexing doubts and fears. Our constant doubts of assurance, whether I'm really his, that fear of rejection from God is going to be lifted. First John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We'll rest from the sense of God's displeasure. Friends, though our sins are fully forgiven right now because of Christ, if you are in Christ, all your sins are forgiven if you're in Christ. Yet when I sin today, I still sense God's displeasure. When I grieve him, I have this sense of, I know God's upset with me. That's going to be gone. That's going to be gone. He won't be angry with us. He will be singing over us. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice, sing over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Can you imagine getting to heaven and Jesus singing over you? That's awesome. We'll rest from all of Satan's temptations. 
Satan, because he's going to be cast forever into hell, then you're no longer ever going to face his temptations. You will be resting fully from that. It says in Revelation 20.10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He will never, ever tempt you again. We will rest from all of the world's temptations and our own flesh's temptations. You see, we wrestle with three kinds, right? The Satan, I just talked about him, the world outside us, and then our messy hearts itself. All three of these things we are going to rest from. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, through 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the honor and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to rest as well from all abuse and, per- and persecution. Those who abuse, have been abused, will be fully free from all who wish to harm them. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man, though, who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. What else will we rest from? We'll rest from all our sad divisions between Christians. There's like 50 churches in this town. And I think a good majority of them still believe in Jesus. There's some I'm not so sure about. But all these divisions between us will be done. We'll finally find out that the Baptists were the right ones. I didn't say that. I'm sorry. (laughs) Seriously, though, the whole argument about when is he coming and who's going to be caught up in the air and what time, it's all going to be figured out. Whether you're supposed to baptize the babies or not will be figured out. Whether you should be speaking in tongues in church or not is going to be figured out. It'll all be done. We'll rest from that because it is the unity that God will have pushed us towards. It's the unity that Christ died for. At Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, Christ was making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What else are we going to rest from? We're going to rest from all the sadness we feel when seeing poverty. When I was a kid, and even still to this day, I feel this hopelessness when I see so many people that are just utterly at the bottom, and I can't do a thing about it. I don't know if you ever feel that sadness, that weight, right? And, and, and you drive into to the, on, on Prospect, that intersection off the interstate. There's always people there that are trying to get money. Some of them I'm, I'm not so sure about, right? But every, every time I see a beggar, I'm like, uh, I don't have any cash. I can't help you. And I think about almost this whole east end of this town. I can't relieve all of that. We will rest. We will rest from that because God cares about the poor. Psalm 12, 5, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, 
I will now arise, says the Lord, and I will place him in the safety for which he longs. We'll also rest from all our own personal sufferings and grief and fear. I read this this morning. I'll read it again. It's all going to be done. All the pains of our bodies, the griefs we've known from loved ones running from God, the fears we have within and without, it's all going to be done. And the sadness we know here will be no more. Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We'll rest from all of the burdens and pain of duty. We have duties, whether it's your job, whether it's parenting, the parenting duties, Austin, it's going to be done. Lexi, right? It, the griefs that we have as parents, as you go out and your kids go out and make decisions that you're like, that's not going to go well for you. And the duties that we have to keep on chiding them and pointing them in the right direction, it's exhausting. And ministry, ministry efforts, the duties there are, are so tiring. But we know in the tears that we shed, Weeping tarries for a night, but joy will come in the morning. We will also rest from all those sad feelings that accompany our absence from God. The longing to be with Christ. Do you ever just, just ache because Jesus isn't, isn't... We know he's in our presence. We said that this morning. But sometimes I'm like, would you just talk to me? I want to literally, audibly hear your voice and see your face. And it, I groan, I ache, it makes me sad that I can't be with him. That's going to be done. We will rest because he will show himself to us in Psalm 1611. We'll become true for sure. We'll see it. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And these things, and there's so much more. There's so much more we'll rest from and know eternal joy. But you know what I find is that keeping these 10 things in front of my mind is hard. I'm so distracted. Stupid phones, stupid everything. It gets in the way and I lose sight of what the real rest is. All this, all this and so much more. And there's things, I think, that hinder us from striving to enter that. I just listed a couple of stupid things. But let me just give you three things that are really important that Baxter pointed out to me. Living in known sin. If you have something that you're saying, I'm not going to deal with. I'm not saying a sin that you struggle with and you're fighting against, and when you fail, you seek God's forgiveness, and then you're working hard to not. That's not what I'm talking about. If you have something that you're saying, I've got this, and you can't touch this, I can name it, but I don't. there's all kinds of things. It could be. I'll let the Spirit point that out in your life. But if you have something like that, I guarantee you, your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling the joy in your faith will be zapped. 
you will not be able to strive and keep your eye for sure on heaven because it's not going to go well for you. <laughs> Living in known sin. And David wrote about this in Psalm 32, 3. Read the whole psalm. If you have known sin that you're not dealing with, this will tell you what it's like. One particular thing, he talks about the physical effects. For when I kept silent, meaning I didn't confess it to you, God, I didn't deal with it, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. A second thing that will hinder you from seeing those ten joys that we will rest from, and, and, and just this is just like Israel. When they moved into the promised land, they started living in known sin. They tried to say, I'm going to go to the tabernacle on Saturday instead of the church on Sunday. I'm going to go to the tabernacle on Sunday and I'm going to sleep with my, I'm going to do this one. And they thought they can do that. And God says, no. No, you cannot serve two masters, he says. You cannot live in known sin. Another one, oh, this quote. Sin cuts the very sinews, muscles of the soul. The heavenly life will either make you leave sin or sin will make you leave the heavenly life. Anyway, the second thing that will keep you from entering into that rest, that will, will hinder your ability to have your mind set on the goal. And when you have your mind set on the goal, you have the energy to take that next step. You have the grace to be able to keep plodding along and persevering. These things get in the way, and that is a proud and arrogant spirit. Daily reminding yourself of your own unworthiness and his grace will keep to keep your mind on things above. You, the, the proud heart will keep you away because you think you've got it figured out. You think you, everybody should, you know, listen to you. But God says he opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Third thing that I think keeps us from having a heavenly mind, from entering into that rest, from striving to have our minds on the end, is mere talk. Mere talk. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian's walking on his journey to get to the celestial gate. And there's this dude that comes up named Talkative. And he loves to talk about theology. Oh, man. He loves to talk about the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. He loves that. Oh, my gosh. And whether uh, superlapsarianism or infralapsarian, you're like, what the heck is that? It's deep theological stuff that's very interesting, but it doesn't affect his soul or his life. He loves to talk about whatever. But if you don't love Jesus and it's not shaping and changing your walk, it's just mere talk. Just shut up because it's pointless. James, we've been studying this. He says this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, sees the mess in the morning, right? For he looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks in the perfect law the law of liberty, and perseveres, right? Striving earnestly to enter that rest, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. Finally, fifth question, how do we keep our eyes on that rest? 
Those are three things that keep you from keeping your eyes on that rest. What are just three simple things that I think will help us keep our eyes on that rest? First of all, grow in your love for heaven by meditating what God says about heaven. I gave all those verses when I was talking about what heaven's going to be like because those are where you will find out what this rest will be like. You have to be in the word on a regular basis, meditating, like chewing on it, thinking, what is my rest that I'm longing for? Where am I going? You grow in it by reading your Bible. Second, you pray. You grow in your longing for heaven, for this rest, by daily communicating with your Savior. It's like, it'd be like if, if Audrey and I didn't talk for a whole day. You know how awful that would feel? Now, I've counseled some marriages where that happens. It goes days. It's awful. You know that feeling when you don't talk to somebody and you know you should be talking to somebody. When we don't talk to the Lord, that's what it's like. And you wonder, like, why? <laughs> pray, friends. Read your Bible and pray. It's just simple stuff. I mean, it's not simple, but it is. I'm not, I don't have complex solutions. Matt and I have actually probably five tools in the toolbox to tell you. And this is just three of them. <laughs> the other one is grow in your desire for heaven by taking advantages, advantage of the means God's given you to stay on the path. In other words, you're doing one of them right now. You're here. Gather with God's people. When there's teaching and preaching and fellowship opportunities, be there. Because we don't walk to heaven. We don't strive on our own. If you do, you will get shot down pretty quick. It doesn't work. You need the people of God. God did not save each individual person to be on their own. He saved you to be with a people. The preaching and then the Lord's table that we're about to do in just a few minutes. That, my friends, is key. So maybe you've come here today and you're exhausted from all the trials of life and you're longing for that rest that God promises us. Today he calls you to look to him to find rest, the rest and satisfaction your soul longs for. Maybe you're here today and you've never actually taken time to think about this. You just kind of understand there's this church thing and I go sometimes. The thing is, all of us are sinners We've all failed and rebelled against God. And there's no way any of us will get that rest that you're longing for until you come to Christ and you say, Christ, my only way to get to that rest is through you. You died for that. I need you. I can't be good enough. And all of my failures definitely seal the deal. I need you, Christ. If you have never done that today, would you come to him? Would you say, God, I am... Jesus Christ is my only hope. That's where you will find your rest and satisfaction. But if you are a believer, you're struggling with just being exhausted, I want to give you a passage from Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. And when you see it, walk in it. And when you walk in it, you'll find rest for your souls. Does that last phrase sound familiar? It should, because our Savior said that. 
He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, moms, dads, workers, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and that easy means it fits the yoke over oxen. It doesn't have these rubbing spots that just grind you down. It fits just right, and my burden is light. Today is the day to come to him. Find this balm right here for your soul. Let's pray. If I could have the men who are going to come and do the uh, help me out with communion come up, and then um, let me pray. Father, I, I thank you for this rest that you hold out for us, heaven. I thank you that this life right now, we see these gifts, things like the beauty of creation and good food and pleasures now. It's so easy to fall in love with those things and realize that those gifts are merely pointers to this heavenly rest that we have talked about. And we get so distracted by those. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would help us to be meditating on your heavenly rest, that we would enter, that we would trust and obey and enter that rest that you have promised that we um, so easily lose sight of. Would you keep that rest in front of us? And I thank you for this opportunity we have now to celebrate this, this commemoration meal that helps us remember that you lived and died for us so that we can enter that rest, so that we can feast together in the end with you. In Jesus' name, amen come to this time when Jesus had his last supper, the last Passover with his disciples. And I'm going to go ahead and let these men pass this around. And then um, while they're passing this out, if you would just take a minute just to reflect what we just talked about and where am I where am I being hindered? What things in my life are hindering me from keeping my eye on the goal?
Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. We take the same bread in your cup. Remember, this is his body shed for you. Do this in remembrance of him. He goes on to say, in the same way also, he took the cup, the cup of redemption after the Passover supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Ashley's been playing We Will Feast. I think it's appropriate for us to finish up and singing together if you would stand. And we will sing We Will Feast. This song is all about that time of the end when we feast together in that eternal rest with God himself. Let's sing. <laughs>